Hello, this is international football commentator Derek Ray, and you're listening to the Ranks FC podcast. Hello, Rank Squad, and welcome to Ranks FC. It's your favourite football podcast back for another week. My name is Jack Collins, and I'll be your host today, all the way from Sicily. It's very exciting. I've got myself a headset. I feel like Britney Spears sitting in uh, a room <laughs> in the middle of this apartment in Sicily, but I'm in a nice time, so everything is well. I'm joined, of course, by the Rank God, Mr. Sam Tai. How you doing, mate? I'm good, mate. I'm good. I'm good. I'm uh, glad that you're finally getting a little bit of time away. You deserve it. Uh, I wish you'd actually take the time to be away. <laughs> we were looking forward to having a pod without you, but alas, you decided to chime in all the way from Palermo. Mate, you can't you can't get rid of me that easily. I'm afraid but, uh, this is this is not how it works. And of course, our five by five champion, King of the Andals, the first men, Mr. Dean Jones. How you doing, mate? Hello, I'm good. I mean, you sound like you're further away than Palermo, to be honest. You sound like you're on a different planet with this headset you've, you've got on. Um, but fair play to you for working. I, I wouldn't have done it. But um, yeah, that, that's the Jack Collins attitude, isn't it? You refuse to miss a game. The grind goes on. The grind goes on. I am Inyaki Williams of the podcast. Inyaki Williams of the of the podcast world. We injuries do not stop us. Time away doesn't stop us. We carry on going. Uh, we are going to be talking today about managers under fire. It feels like that time for the season, doesn't it? You know, it's a little bit out this year because of the World Cup, obviously. But it feels like the, the moments in the season where managers are starting to lose their well, I was going to say heads there, but it's probably a little bit extreme. Uh, lose their chops, <laughs> and, and it does feel like there's a couple of managers on the brink so we're going to be coming to them we're going to be sacking or saving Europe's under fire managers I'm looking forward to it but before we get into that there is of course time for things we love and DJ you're going to start us off this week I am going to start us off this week and we have to talk about the man um, Erling Haaland Erling Haaland has turned the Premier League into a farmer's league in eight games. Absolutely <laughs> unbelievable. Like, there are a lot of people who are very stuck up about the Premier League. I might have even been one of them. Um, and we didn't believe that somebody could land in our league and do this to it. But he has. He's got 14 goals and three assists in eight matches. He is destroying anybody that gets in his way. He's got three successive home hat-tricks. And, well, he's also ruined FPL. If you are in FPL, uh, Fantasy Premier League, and, and you've not picked Haaland trying to be a bit smart and different, well, you're in big trouble. In fact, you might as well give up the game because you are well behind. Haaland has 96 points so far in Fantasy. Oh my God. And Harry Kane is the closest to him with 56. Harry Kane's supposed to be the best striker in the world. I thought Harry Kane was the best striker in the world. <laughs> He's not. He's not even close to it. Erling Haaland is. And, and if you've captained him all season, you've got nearly 200 points. It's ridiculous. It, what, what this guy is doing to the league is absolutely ridiculous. And I'm kind of glad he's done it. I'm glad that it's a wake-up call to everybody that superstar footballers can do this in any league. And it doesn't matter. You know, We can be very judgmental, particularly of Liga, of Bundesliga. But it doesn't matter. If, you're a, if you've got this in your tank, you can do it at any level. It's a shame, really, that he's not going to the World Cup. 
I think they should have made a special team of did not qualified <laughs> for this World Cup. Seeing that they've extended it to 32 teams, they should have either let him play for Qatar or let him set up his own team. <laughs> if, if Erling Haaland played for Qatar, they would get through their group. <laughs> they would. They, they would. would. They would. <laughs> so it's not just about the goals and the records and the uh, the incredible moments that he's giving us and, and, and yeah, just the fantasy points as well. It's like, he has actually, I think, Erling Haaland is the first player in a long time to to, to truly like transcend that discussion and just be ever present in everything anyone talks about. Um, using my WhatsApp group with my four closest friends as the as the prime example here, we don't talk about that much football with in, in this group. It's the four guys that I went to school with in junior school. For the last seventy two hours, we have spoken about absolutely nothing other than Erling Haaland. Just sharing stats, sharing pictures, making jokes. He has dominated the narrative of the entirety of football across the globe since he's joined Man City and it's ramped up since the three consecutive hat-tricks. The amount, the amount that we are talking about Erling Haaland, is, I haven't seen it since maybe like, you know, Messi led Barcelona to a bunch of 5-0 wins over Real Madrid. Mm. Mm, exactly that. It, it, it's just unbelievable. And I... I do feel sorry for Southampton because at the weekend, Man City are home to Southampton. They're going to get battered. Well, he's, he's, due, he's due not score a hat-trick. Is he? Yeah, because he's had three in a row. So, odds are he doesn't score <laughs> he four. He ends at three. <laughs> <laughs> Dean, he Dean. might do this every game for the rest of the season. Dean, I've got to sit down and write the tactical opposition profile for the oh, Southampton well, magazine easy. tomorrow. That is, is the easiest column you've ever written. <laughs> Yeah, but what you've got to make, talk about. I've got to is, make it sound like Southampton have a chance. They don't. <laughs> you you can't, can't, I'm afraid. It doesn't no. work. I mean, you say that. Like, obviously, that football's weird. I'd say you've drawn two games in the league this season. Mm, football's weird. And these things do happen when you least expect them. So you never know. You never hey, know. Maybe you, Southampton... you can't. You can't write that as your preview. Yeah, no, he's just. <laughs> you can't he be has, like, just sometimes, written... sometimes weird things happen in football. So uh, that's about as good a chance as I can give Southampton this weekend. If that's going in the Saints program, you you know you're in trouble. I think he's just written my opening line. Yeah, I mean the scariest thing. Okay, so when you watch everyone, when you watch Holland next. So as a footballer, when you're like coming up and stuff, they always teach you to like have an awareness of your environment around you, right? So you're taught to try and like look over your shoulders whenever you can, whatever. And um, Holland, the speed at which he turns his neck quickly, right? As, as a ball is, as, say De Bruyne is approaching the box, right? You'll see him start to carry the ball and he'll start to be thinking about unleashing what, where he's going to pass to. Holland will drift, 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 and he does this movement with his neck. He's got the strongest neck in the world, obviously. Anyway, if I if I moved my neck basically as quick as Holland does in this like one You'd second, have whiplash. I would be in hospital, yeah, with whiplash. Uh, and he just whips it. It'd be like two quick turns both sides. Suddenly, he knows everything around him, and he'll either drop him behind. He'll quickly move him behind, or he'll just whip him front, and he gets the ball. It is absolutely obscene. It is obscene, and it is scary. Because no one can stop it. No one can stop it. I really enjoyed over the course of the weekend. I saw a tweet from a friend of the pod, Alex Stewart, who's now of Analytics FC, and he said Bundesliga tax takes don't really apply to a guy who could probably take on Thanos without much assistance, and it really did make <laughs> me laugh. It's one of those you're like, well, there's just not much that you can do about it, is there? And 
this is it. You know, we talked about this on, on Monday's pod on, on the post box and talked about the fact that actually him dropping deep and uh, actually kind of ruining that that Manchester United midfield triangle by kind of dropping into it and offering just another passing option was one thing. And that was very, very impressive. And then he scored a hat trick. It's like he's playing two separate roles at once and doing them both impeccably. And and this is where we are with Holland at the moment. You know, yes, you have to give the context of he is playing for one of the most creative teams on earth who give the ball to him in the areas that he wants to get the ball. And he is doing what you expect him to do in these situations, which is stick it in the back of the net. But equally, I don't think anybody thought it was going to start this fast. Mm. And it, it's just... It's a campaign of terror, basically, against Premier League defenders. And there's no the real thing. way of anything doing about it. Who would you t- like? Peak Aguero, right? He wasn't as good as this, was he? No, unfortunately not. Like, that's mad. Aguero was insane at his very best. We are talking about a 10 game spell. Like, it might it might drop off. I mean, I say that. It's, it, it's, it's not going to drop off. Goals, it's, it's, but surely he can't. But it, but you it's know, mad. it's mad that we're seeing even, you know, the fact I'm even talking about him and Aguero already, like after eight games, and saying like, oh, we can forget that new statue, knock that statue down, put this. Up. Yeah, <laughs> get it up, get the statue immediately. It's 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 about time, isn't it? About time. Thank you, Dokey. Let's move on from Erling Haaland because there aren't many things that leave me speechless. But at the moment, it does feel a little bit like lost for words and trying to describe the, the impact he is having. And Sam, what have you got for us? Yeah, the thing I love this week is Athletic Club's brilliant start to the season. I think we can officially crown it as that now. We're, we're, we're enough of the season in to say that Athletic have been have been superb over the course of the last seven games. They've won five of them, drawn one and lost only one. They scored the third most goals in La Liga and they've conceded the second fewest. So they're ticking every box. They're great fun to watch. There's a, a lovely feel to them. And to really make this even better, the cherry on the top is that they are powered by a brotherhood. Iñaki and Nico Williams in the forward line together. And on Friday... Then they beat Almeria 4-0. They assisted goals for each other. It's just wonderful. I mean, they won 4-0. Um, they've done this a couple of times this season already. They really can They really can't uh, pull away from teams. But Nico started the game on the right-hand side, or played the game on the right-hand side, cut in on his left foot, crossed it in, and Yaki heads it home. I'd imagine that that cross and run is very well rehearsed from the garden from the younger days. <laughs> and then later in the second half, Yaki feeds the ball into the box. Nico holds off a man and scores so they assist each other for a goal in the same game and there is just this really strong family feeling to athletic athletic anyway and 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 the way that Ernesto Valverde is coaching the team all feels very holistic and very nice and then to have a literal family connection running the forward line and powering its success makes it really really special and it it did kind of make me think about other brother combinations uh, in football, we don't see them very often. There have been some good ones. And I remember Eden and Torgan Hazard playing for Belgium together was pretty special. The they, scored, twins. they both scored in a game, the, the Hazard brothers. I think it was against Russia in qualification for the last Euros. Yeah, um, I do seem so to remember this. Yeah. Bender twins used to play for Dortmund together. That was cool. The RU brothers for Ghana. Raphael and Fabio, obviously, as twins. Yaya and Colo together, the Nevilles. But really, like... The Higuain brothers into Miami. Come on. There you go. Yeah. Oh, and happy retirement to Gonzalo. He uh, announced that on Monday. Uh, He's going to be finishing up at the end of the season. A hell of a career to him. And the Jones brothers at LAFC, Dylan and (laughs) Reese. Soon come. Soon come. Yeah. 
Look, there, there's some really good examples of, of, of brothers playing together in football, but ultimately I've just listed off about 10. And we're also going back to like the Bender twins back in sort of like 12 years ago. So this isn't very common for obvious reasons. So it is really, really special. And to have them at a club like Athletic, where it is so close-knit, feels even more special. And then, of course, they're picking up win after win after win. Just awesome. Yes. Yeah, it really is a good vibe over there in Bilbao at the moment, isn't it? Everything feels like it's moving in the right direction. I go to a game soon. We should. We should. Maybe we should think about that. Maybe there's a. Maybe there's something in the pipeline. Maybe next weekend. We'll have a think. We'll have a think. Um, right. Let's move onwards. And actually, I want to talk about a start to a season as well, but one that perhaps was a little bit more out of the blue. I want to talk about Casapia, who are in the Primeira Liga in Portugal. Now, if you'd said to pretty much anyone in the world of football, there are going to be two Lisbon-based teams in the top four of the Portuguese league after four, after eight matches. You'd have gone, yeah, fair enough, reasonable. Benfica are under new management and looking very, very good. Uh, and Sporting are going to be in that conversation. But no, the second Lisbon-based team in the top four in Portugal right now is Casa Pia, who are back in the top flight for the first time in 83 years. They've only ever spent one year, one season in the top flight. Before that, that was in 1938-39, where they were immediately relegated. They got two points. It was not pretty. Two. This this was in the day when a win was worth two. So in, in today's today's parlance, at the very least, it would have been it would have been three points. But still, it's it's not great. They, <laughs> Unless they, it was they, two draws. <laughs> they won no, 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 they won one, drew none, and lost thirteen. Um, oh, not pretty. Not pretty. A... Yeah, bottom of the table, scored twelve, conceded fifty six, and were relegated with a goal difference of minus forty four. So that's not good. Not good. But they were they were promoted last season, uh, second place in, in the second tier in the Segunda in Portugal. Uh, and it's all very exciting because currently they sit fourth in the Primeira. And, you know, we were talking about some interesting things there with, with Athletic about how many goals they've scored and how many they've conceded. Casavia have conceded only four goals. Only Benfica, who are top of the league with three, have conceded less. The other thing is that they've only scored nine in their eight games. But it has been enough in most of these games to get them over the line. They've won five, drawn two, and lost only one, which was a very narrow 1-0 defeat to Benfica, who remain at the, at the top of the table, as we say. It's just a really nice story. Look, Casabia are based out of, uh, well, or at least named after, a Portuguese children's charity, um, which is also called Casabia. And, you know, traditionally and historically, a lot of their athletes have come through the this kind of, well, academy i suppose in in many ways the charity that that becomes a school and lots of people come through it and basically the caspianos have made up the the mainframe of this team for for many many years now that's not quite the case anymore it's not you know as uh, old school as it used to be these these players are not all from the the education institution that it gets its name from but equally it's a really really pleasant story and, and a very very small club a very small community club there's a brilliant chapter on them uh, in a book called a thousand miles to jamora journey to the heart of portuguese football that i've just finished and it it's just a quite a, a sensational point here that where they are in the table after eight games is is four this is a team who are odds on for relegation their manager felipe martins has 
sort of bounced around the first and second tier of Portuguese football. He got them promoted last year. They stuck with him and he's doing such a wonderful job here. They are incredibly hard to break down. They don't know when they're beaten, a trait they share with Udinese, um, as I tweeted last night. Oh, yeah. But it's just, a, you know, it, it feels really good around the club at the moment. It's a very small you know, place and, and they, have a, they have a little old stadium in the, called the Pina Manique. Um, and it's just lots of things. I think this, the stadium holds 2,500 people. This is not a big club. Uh, and for them to be sitting where they are currently in in the Primeira, I think it is very, very special. And it, it makes me feel very happy, frankly. So that's my things we love because, I, you know, to see a side like this up there and, and kind of fighting it out and duking it out with the big guns in this league, they currently sit, you know, three places in the league and four points above Sporting. You know, they're, they're much more illustrious. They're much bigger neighbours. And they play them in a couple of weeks. Interestingly, there's an added element to that game because Casabia's manager and the well, half of the season where they started this rise up the table was the first job that Juven Amorim had as a manager. Now, it ended in a bit of disaster for him. He didn't have the required coaching badges and they ended up getting a year suspension uh, for basically being on the sidelines when he wasn't allowed to be. But Casapia ended the season getting promoted anyway. Um, and, and and he moved on, obviously, there to Braga uh, and then on to Sporting. But, you know, uh, it's just a little added element of, of that game in a couple of weeks between Casapia and, and Sporting. And it's going to be very interesting because, you know, no matter what happens, Casapia are going to be above Sporting in the table going into that fixture. And if you'd said anyone that that was going to be the case at the start of this season, 10 games in, you know, I, I think people would have laughed at you. So, yeah, just a, a nice story out of Portugal, a, a little underdog fighting up there with the big guns. Do I think they're going to end in the top four? No. Do I think they're going to end in the European places? Also, no. But but equally, you know, a good start to the season can help ease that threat of relegation, which was a, a genuine threat, uh, you know, at the start of the season. They are currently 12 points clear of the playoff place um, and 15 points clear of, of the actual relegation zone. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things you look at and go, right, they're the kind of starts that can keep you in a division. And for a small club who will benefit from, you know, having the, the infrastructure around, having being a part of the Primera, I just think it, it, it's quite a special moment. So, yeah, shout out to Casabia. That's my that's my things we love this week. Yeah, very nice. nice. Very nice. Love an underdog. We do like an underdog tale here on Ranks, don't we? They're, they're, they're fun and games. You definitely do. I, I definitely do. I'm, I'm all about narrative. That's I have a favourite thing. <laughs> Dean Jones, famous supporter of both Real Madrid and Barcelona, prefers it when the favourites win. All right, right. After the break, we're going to be talking about Europe's under fire managers. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to Ranks FC, where it's time for our main ranking. We are talking the managers under pressure across Europe. And Sam, I'm going to throw it to you. Yeah, we were sort of fishing around for a topic for this week and Dean said, hey, do you remember when we played sack or save with those managers about a year ago? And, and now feels about the right time, as you said in the introductory section. There's a, a little list of managers here we've got who feel like they're under quite serious pressure. Um, they've got a couple from the Premier League and then other three or four split across Europe. So a nice range to it. And I'm just going to tick a few boxes off to start with and just uh, and just, just head off a few conversations. First of all, Max Allegri at Juventus, obviously under massive pressure. Uh, the football they're playing is absolutely horrific. Um, but 
all the reports I seem to read, and I don't have any knowledge of the situation, but going off the Italian media, they do not appear to be able to afford to sack him. So this is something we've talked about in the, in, in, in recent history as well, and there's no need to go over the old ground there if it's not a realistic scenario. Now, you never know, you know how bad it can get, but it looks like they might be on the hook for like 30 million euros to sack him, which they obviously can't afford right now. So we'll just put that one aside. Obviously, Allegri is under huge pressure, and I think if he got sacked, it would be justified. But not sure it's worth discussing. And you know what? I really thought I was going to be sat here talking about Brendan Rodgers too. It's amazing what one game of football can do for you, isn't it? Monday night, Leicester against Nottingham Forest. A local derby, basically, an East Midlands derby. The first time they'd met in the top tier, I think, since 1999. And Mm. Leicester go out and win 4-0. And this is just the kind of result that can change everything for you. Leicester had been searching for that first win, searching for that jolt of jolt of energy, that momentum boost, and this is what they've got. So we're going to leave Rodgers aside as well, to my shock. But what it does do is kind of lead us on to our first candidate here, who is the man who was stood in the other dugout in this 4-0 scoreline on Monday night. It's Steve Cooper of Nottingham Forest. They are bottom of the league. They have five losses in a row. They signed 22 players in the summer and they've now changed formation, I think, three times. Wasn't it 23, Sam? Didn't they get Sergio late? Oh, was it 23? Uh, Signed 20 plus players in the summer. (laughs) And you know what? They've changed. They've had to change their system around a a few times. They changed the orientation of the forward line from a a 10 and two forwards to to maybe the opposite. And then on Monday night, they rock up, you know, after international break, they rock up with a back four. Now, this is the team who I think technically have about eight centre-backs on staff and and they basically changed to to a back four. This does not look like a team that no... Well, let's not even call it their best 11. Let's say their best match day squad, because a lot of these guys presumably are still learning each other's names. Now, we poked a fair bit of fun at Forest over the summer for signing this many players, and we accept that they did need to sign a lot of players. But at a certain point, somewhere between 14 and 16, we hit a tipping point, and they just carried on going. And... The performances have not been good over the last two or three games. The results obviously are very bad. And when you go out and sign this many players, and when you spend however much money it was on on Morgan Gibbs-White, and you go out and capture like Renan Lodi from Atletico Madrid, this sets expectations. Rightly or wrongly, it sets expectations of the manager because it speaks of owner ambition. And right now, Steve Cooper must be right in right in the fire. Because his results are poor, his performances are poor, he's chopping and changing his shape, nothing's going right, and he does have good players to call upon. Hmm. I mean, victim of his own success, right? I mean, this this team a year ago, would they were terrible. And they, they bought bottom four? <laughs> they, must have, they, would, they would have been close to that, yeah, if they weren't. Yeah. Um, he literally transformed this club in a matter of months and took them from relegation threat to being promoted by the playoffs. And you can't really do that. You can't really do that and then immediately make a mark in the Premier League on the back of it because so much does need to change. And yeah, 23 players, obviously a ridiculous. It's an entire squad of players that they've brought in. Um, and that there's, there's no signs of anywhere that ever working. But they had no choice. They, they had to get rid of a lot of players as well in the summer. Steve Cooper, as we know and we've mentioned before, like has a good track record of England youth sides and 
you know, having to deal with players from all different clubs for very short amounts of time. This is the Premier League and you're playing against clubs that don't have that problem. And that's the difference. Like when you're playing for England under 17s, you're playing against Spain under 17. So their manager's got exactly the same dilemma as that you've got. But if you're Nottingham Forest and you're playing against Leicester City and you've got Brendan Rodgers, who's been there for years. Who has signed no one. <laughs> signed no one and has a lot of players actually trying to prove their, save their future probably at the club. I mean, this, this team has been in disarray and there's definitely a chance that they're going to be ripped apart and starting again soon. Um, and Leicester, you know, for, for the start they'd had and no wins, they hadn't been quite that bad and some of their re- results definitely didn't reflect the performances. Um it's probably not a great surprise. Also, like given the ambition that they showed in the transfer market, they will now reflect that in their search for a new manager. Like Nottingham Forest next manager, I'm expecting a high-profile manager. It will be somebody, I think, who has probably managed in the Premier League with some sort of success. I know Rafa Benitez is in the frame for this job if it comes available. Um, I don't personally know that Rafa Benitez is exactly what I'd be looking here but I understand why the why the man why the people overlooking the project might think okay well let's go for a manager like this I mean I don't know who do you think would actually do the job here I mean if I don't know ideally you want someone that's out of a job or close to out of a job so maybe it's all the people that we're about to list could could become contenders for the Nottingham Forest job but um they can't really get a Pochettino, can they? Like, if you were to show as much ambition as you like, that's yeah. as ambitious as you could really be right now. Like, Pochettino and Tuchel, probably the two biggest names out there that have managed in the Premier League that you could get. But they're not really gettable, and that's probably why you do land at, like, a Rafa Benitez type. Yeah, yeah I don't love. think it's... Don't think it's possible to, to yeah, for, for Forest yeah, as ambitious yeah. as they are, and Premier League goes a long way for that sort of thing. It's not going to be possible. I mean, look, we're playing sack or save, and, and I'm going to make a call on each one. Um, sometimes it's with a heavy heart, but uh, Nottingham Forest have conceded 21 goals in eight games. Okay, six are from Manchester City, so actually they came away lightly on that one. Um, but 4 0 to Leicester, 3 2 to Fulham in a bit of a collapse. 3-2 to Bournemouth in a bit of a collapse. And what I saw on Monday night was a pretty porous team. Uh, tactically speaking, it looked far too easy to scythe straight through the middle of them, find the spaces between the lines. They didn't look good on the ball or off the ball. And they didn't look like a team that looked particularly confident, which is always a bad sign. Now, there are a lot of mitigating factors here, but ultimately you're running the risk of being completely and utterly cut adrift if you don't act soon. So I'm going to go sack with a bit of a heavy heart there because I think that's probably what's going to happen anyway. But based on what I saw last night, that cannot continue. You cannot stay in the league if you play like that. Mm. I, I find that hard to, to today. I, I would actually go the other way on this, Sam. I, I would keep Cooper in there. I think he's their best chance of staying up. Um, you know, he's a, a manager knows the team. And that, you know, doubling down on that, if they were to be relegated, I think he's their best chance of coming straight back up again, you know, mm. from the championship. Look, this squad is is now built for a long time, right? This is a squad that if you can keep hold of even half of the players that you've signed, you're looking at kind of storming the championship the season after and coming up automatically and being in a much better place. And I think that Steve Cooper is, is the kind of manager who could do that. That said, he has been known to wander or have a wandering eye when things aren't going well. I remember there were rumours that he went for an interview for the Crystal Palace job the day before his Swansea side played 
in in the playoff final against Brentford and, and there have been similar links with with various other clubs as well not quite to that extent but I do think he's a he's a very good manager I do have a problem with yesterday's game in that the switch to four at the back doesn't make any sense if you sign Nico Williams Renan Lodi Serge Aurier and Harry Toffolo as your fullbacks or wingbacks in this case you don't switch to a four at the back. None of those players, Lodi maybe, maybe the exception, are cut out to play in a four at the back system in the Premier League. They are, you know, traditionally wing backs, I think, most of them. And and, and that would for me worries me that that was how they decided to try and approach this game. Now, there might have been a, a point here where they've gone, Leicester in terrible form. Let's try and get get at them early. You know, and and, and as you tweeted, you know, ONE hits the post and then 10, 12 minutes later, they're 3-0 down. That's how the, the game swings sometimes. If they go ahead here, mm. do Leicester heads drop, do the crowd turn again, um, and do Forest kick on with a more offensive system and, and, and kind of try and eat this game up? That would be my you know, assumption of, of what Steve Cooper was trying to do. But I just don't think you can sign the fullbacks that he's done and then decide that you're going to go straight to a, a four at the back system. It doesn't make any sense. And that's the biggest worry I've seen so far from Forest. Yes, there were the collapses. Yes, they're not very good. The two home collapses against the two teams in Bournemouth and Fulham, who you really need to be beating if you're going to stay up. You know, these are the teams that came up with you. That said, Fulham and Bournemouth both finished ahead of Nottingham Forest last year in the league. And and so therefore, you're looking at two teams who on paper, at the very least, are, are actually better than, than Nottingham Forest. Nottingham Forest are officially the currently the 20th best team in the league, not just in terms of the table, but actually in terms of where where you're looking at where teams finished last year and in the order in which the pecking order in which they came up. So there are sort of some factors, but that switch to four at the back yesterday, I completely agree with you. That's the first time I've gone, ooh, I don't like that at all from Steve Cooper. It always worries me when I see managers defect from what I what I, what, I, what I assume is kind of like the plan they set out for the season. Um, because we always talk about managers who sort of get inside their own heads too much um, and they sort of kid themselves out of situations. And we talk, used to talk about it with Mourinho where he bunkers down so hard, he loses sight of what he probably originally planned to do. And yeah. this is probably an example of that. And that's worrying. It's worrying when managers start to do that because it means that they're, they're not thinking clearly. And um, you're right, last you know Monday night's game could have been, it could have swung a different way, as I said, but... The collapse, the collapse in that 10 minute period after nearly taking the lead is also another massive concern. So, yeah, it's tough to see. It's tough to see it going in the right direction anytime soon. And if it doesn't do that, then you are in so much trouble. So I'd still I'd still go sacked. But it is a heavy heart because I do think Steve Cooper is a good coach. He might even be sacked before some people even listening to this podcast, to be honest. Like it, it, that wouldn't surprise me. I think that like a lot of Forest fans would, would want him to stay. I think after what he's done to the club and what he's done for the team, I think that they would have enough belief in him and enough um, sentiment to want him to carry on. I noticed that watching the game that they were even chanting his name towards the end of that game. And I think that's really interesting. Like most teams that are in a slump like that, of uh, that many defeats and losing to their local rivals in that fashion, certainly wouldn't have doing that. But they, they have supported him. I... I my personal, personally, I'd say save him, but he will be sacked. And then what I think will happen is he will end up at another Premier League club sometime this season. 
I think Wolves could probably do worse. I was going to say, yeah. Almost could do worse than having Steve Cooper. Um, and probably, well, I don't know if Aston Villa we talked about in this podcast, but if they are, I'd say Aston Villa could probably do worse than having Steve Cooper, an actual coach with their team. So, yeah, I think it'll be, I think it'll be a sad day if it comes and when it comes. But um, for him himself, I don't think his reputation will be tired. I think people will know that this is a man who's a really good coach. Okay, let's move on to number four, shall we, Sam? Yeah, okay. So let's go to Gerardo Seoane at Bayer Leverkusen. Mm. Um, I have absolutely no idea how this has got so bad so fast. But Bayer Leverkusen are 17th in the Bundesliga after eight games. That's uh, one from bottom. They have won one game out of eight. They've considered a lot of goals. They've thrown away a lot of good positions. And they are almost incomprehensibly bad considering the amount of talent that they have at their disposal. And this is pretty much unforgivable. Um, I think a lot of other clubs, Seawani probably already would have been fired because it has been that bad. There haven't really been that many shoots of green to keep them going, but he's still there. Now, he is under serious pressure. By the time anyone listens to this podcast, I think they would have played a Champions League game against Porto. So we'll see how that goes. But the talk is that Schalke at home this weekend is three points or you're out. That is, of course, if he actually makes it out of the Porto game. Now, I liked Leverkusen last season in terms of the attacking style they implemented and the chances they created and just the fun that they brought to the pitch. So he really carried that on in the kind of Leverkusen way. They were, of course, a little bit fragile in the underbelly, but they always managed to basically account for that. Only this season, that is absolutely not happening. Now, mm. I haven't been able to watch them every single week like I have done with a lot of these teams. So the the analysis uh, is a little bit less in-depth. But um, given I've used the words unforgivable and unfathomable, I would have to say that Seoane is trending towards sack rather than save. Mostly because I don't know if this changes because they started the season with a Pokal loss to a lower league team, which was thoroughly embarrassing. And this club seem to spiral out of control quicker than almost any club in European football. I'm listening and watching some of the interviews with some of the players after games. And the way that they are expressing themselves after the games is a, is a state in a, they're in a state of absolute disbelief as to how it's got this far. And when you've got players going like, I just don't get it. Like I really thought we were going to win that game and somehow we lost three nil. When you've got players saying that, and they have a lack of genuine belief. This is always a massive, massive concern. So I feel like if Seoane can win midweek and stave it off and get the win against Schalke, it's just a, it's just a matter of time. So I might, I might be tempted to make that switch, particularly given that Thomas Tuchel is, is on the market and Leverkusen are a, are a Champions League German side, if not for that much longer. Yeah, there, there have been some interesting interviews with the kind of higher-ups, if you will, uh, at Leverkusen. I saw one this week that said, if there was to be a change, let's say that we are not unprepared. That's not the kind of thing you want to hear if you are a manager, is it? You're not going, oh God, that's, that's not what we want. Weirdly, they've been actually, the Champions League's been a bit of respite for, for Leverkusen. I know they lost to Club Bruges in the first game, but they were incredibly unlucky to lose that game. They had a goal disallowed for offside that I just still to this day don't know how it was given uh, as offside and then they went and beat Atletico 2-0 you know in, in in the second match day which is 
you know, put them in a relatively okay position in that group, to be honest. So that if they were to beat Porto tonight, you know, and yesterday, as you're listening to this, it would have actually put them in, in a relatively commanding position in their group, which is a very strange place to be, considering how bad they have been in the league. Now, this has been exacerbated by this 4 nil loss to, to Bayern on, on Friday night, and it was bad. Let's, not, let's be honest, it, it wasn't good from kind of any perspective, but equally it is Bayern, and, mm. and Bayern have the capacity to do this to teams. It's a bit like when we talk about teams playing against Man City in the Premier League, if you sometimes you lose 6-0 and you're just like, well, not much to do, not much to do about that really, is there? And, and that's kind of, I think it's harsh to, to base the change of this because we were looking at it before the international break and going, nah, well, I was at the very least thinking, I think so, I only can turn this around. But, and then you then you play Bayern on the first game back, and you're like, that's just the one game you don't want, especially if you're Leverkusen, who just famously continue to lose to Bayern pretty much every time they face them in almost any competition. But, you, you get to this now and you go, right, how do you how do you turn this around? You need to pull off, I don't know, they play Porto home and away in the next week um, with Schalke kind of in the middle and then they go to Eintracht on the, or in that kind of fourth game. You're saying of those four games, if he gets the ability to, to play all four, you need minimum two wins and a draw. Um, you know, and these aren't easy games per se. You know, Schalke are down the bottom of the table as well, but when you're in this kind of form, no game is an easy game. Um, and, and Porto aren't playing particularly well, especially in the Champions League either. So you look at this and go, right, can you do that? Can you get two wins and a draw? One of them has to be the Schalke game, as you say, Sam, um, out of these four games. I think the answer is probably yes, if I'm perfectly honest. I think that they can do that. I think Seoane has some credit in the bank because of how good they were last season and the fact that they were up there and, and relatively comfortably into the Champions League spots, which has been a major problem for Leverkusen over the last couple of years. Um, so, so there is that, but I would like to see him get time. Now, I'm not just going to, not just playing devil's advocate here. Um, and I know I've kind of disagreed with you on both of these two, but these are, this is, these are two managers in Cooper and Sewani who I, I think deserve time and have, have kind of, built up enough credit to give it. Now, it's, it's obviously difficult. I don't run football clubs. Um, I'm just here chatting about them generally. So it's easy for me to say that I would keep them in. Um, but I do think that these are managers and, you know, Leverkusen are famed for playing wild attacking football. They've got Callum hudson Adore on loan. If they bring Tuchel in, I think he might cry. Um, and that's something <laughs> that nobody wants to see, right? You know, imagine you're just looking at him going, oh, surely. Like, he's just sitting there going, Surely not. Like, Hello, surely Callum. How are you? Bloke back, <laughs> the bloke who refused to play me. And you know, Leverkusen have this squad stacked with attacking talent. To bring Duke Lynn, who we've spent a long time in this podcast talking about his lack of attacking patterns, his lack of ability to coach his forwards, basically, into any sort of cohesive system. To bring them into this side, I think, would be a major, major issue. Um, so, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna go save. And say, well, I think he probably just about deserves some time. Just, just remember the carnage of the Bundesliga means that you don't necessarily need attacking patterns to score goals because everyone attacks all the time and therefore there's loads of space. So it's actually less of an issue, genuinely. Yeah, I mean, three reasons I'd say uh, he needs to be sacked are Patrick Schick, Florian Wirtz and Moussa Diaby are going to leave if this carries on. Like, we already know that, that Wirtz is wanted by Bayern Munich. Moussa Diaby... Newcastle were trying to convince him to join. And he said, well, I want to stay here because I think we could win the Bundesliga. <laughs> no. Um, oh, and yeah. Patrick Schick, look, he's been looked at by loads of clubs across Europe. And, uh, and those three players, and I know Wurtz has been injured, uh, but 
you can't hold on to those type of players if you're not in the Champions League, um, especially with the kind of interest they've got. Uh, obviously, Callum Hudson-Odoi is there at the moment. He's not not ripping up trees, but um, he's got a lot good. of... He's actually he's been, been one of the very few bright, bright spots for Leverkusen, to be perfectly honest. Stats-wise, he's not doing anything. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> yeah, it's no good. He needs to go. Oh, man. It's uh, another heavy heart, because I do like him. But um, I... The way... the. <laughs> The key is, is like, do you think you do you think this can change? Do you think you can turn us around? And like, do you have control of this situation? I don't think Steve Cooper has control of the Nottingham Forest situation. I, I genuinely don't, and that's not all his fault because of all the new signings. But I don't think he has the control. Also, I don't think Seoane has control of these players' emotions and the spiraling nature of these performances. And when they're coming out in anguish after the game and being like, "I just don't understand," this is really bad. This is not confident talk. This is not we're going to be okay. We're going to get a few things right. This is. What the hell is happening? And when start players start to wonder that on the pitch, bad things happen. So that's where a change probably comes in for me. All right then, Sammy. Let's go to number three. Okay, number three. As Dean predicted, it's uh, Aston Villa manager Steven Gerrard. <laughs> um, so Villa are 14th in the league, eight points from eight games. It's not a disaster, but there was a lot of a lot of hope and a lot of hype in pre-season. Uh, a summer in which they bought Philip Coutinho, Bubakar Camara, Diego Carlos. You know, there's been serious disappointment almost from the word go. In fact, from the second minute of the first game in which they conceded a corner to Bournemouth and went on to lose 2-0, it's been a bit miserable. Um, I'll sort of balance the argument first by saying, yes, mitigating circumstances. Gerard will have been sat there on August the 1st thinking, right, my back line is Luca Dean, Diego Carlos, Ezri Konsa, Matty Cash, and I'm going to have Bubakar Camera protecting them. In the last game they played, they were allowed or able to call upon one of those players. Diego Carlos has torn his ACL. Bubakar Camera has done his knees out to the end of the World Cup. Matty Cash has missed the last month with a hamstring. They have problems. They do. They have injury issues. They do. But they're bad to watch. They are... They are a horrific, very disjointed. And what's really strange is that Gerard took over a team here about this time last year that were very, very disjointed, very poorly constructed, bad in transition, badly spaced. And he did a really good job of pulling them back into their shells and making them hard to beat. And then after he'd steadied the ship a little bit, he allowed them to go and play a bit more football and the goals just started flying in at the wrong end again. So now he's pulled back in. So while it technically looks like progress, they're actually no further along than they were basically last December. And further yet, you've got players like Ollie Watkins and Emi Buendia and Philip Coutinho. And the football they're playing is is awful. It's absolutely awful. And then you go to the manager himself and the way he's sort of conducting himself. And that Gerard is who he is. He's a serial winner. Um, he's very bullish. The way he speaks to people has never really changed. But the truth is, Villa fans don't really like Gerard. They don't like the way he speaks... They don't like the way he addresses people. There was a really strange moment in the press conference of the weekend where he snapped at a journalist and asked if um, a certain journalist was um, close with uh, Cameron Archer's family because he kept asking questions as to why Cameron Archer wasn't uh, playing any minutes. Um, and, you know, that question is pretty legitimate when Villa aren't scoring goals and Cameron Archer does nothing but score goals. Um, so there's some, there's some ruptures appearing, some fissures, and with with no with nothing to really cling on to in terms of like 
progress, nothing to really cling on to in terms of style. I don't know what I don't really know what there is to say that's relatively positive right now about Steven Gerrard and Villa. This Villa side don't feel any better than they did under Dean Smith. And and that's the problem. And look, Dean Smith had a major connection with his fan base, right? He, he got them promoted again. He was a Villa fan. He spent time in the whole end as a child. There was a lot of kind of nice narrative around it. Now, I know that's not what wins football matches. And I appreciate that. But there is an element of when a fan base back a, a manager, and even when they're going through a bad spell, and it wasn't great, you, you know, you addressed it, Sam, but it, it wasn't pretty towards the, the end of the, the Dean Smith era at Villa. You know, it takes something quite special to turn them around to a new manager if they don't feel that, not it wasn't fair, but they, they maybe feel that the previous manager deserved a little bit more time. And look, I, we saw this at Fulham Dean with when Claudio Ranieri replaced Slavisa Kadovic. And it was one of those, you go, okay, results aren't good. And you can appreciate that a manager might need to be moved on in order to build the team. But when the next manager doesn't build a rapport quickly, it can often end quite badly. And and I think this might be part of the problem at Villa is that, yes, they played better under Gerrard towards the back end of, of last season, but there was nothing for fans to kind of cling on to in terms of, oh, we really like this. There's no personality in terms of them liking him, Sam, as, as you mentioned there. And it does get you to this point where a year on, it doesn't feel like they're any better than they were under Dean Smith. There's a lot of questions being asked, being like, well, why did we do that? What, what was the point? What was the point in us moving on a manager who was quite, you know, liked on the terraces, who was, you know, adored by a fan base who who felt that he represented them as, as kind of one of their own to replace him with a manager who people have just not warmed to whatsoever. And this goes to the top and it goes up to that relationship that Gerard has with the higher ups at Aston Villa who were desperate for him to come in and, you know, make this a thing and it, and it backfiring doesn't look good in, in that respect. Yeah, I, th- I say like the, the problem that I'd have with it too is that they've got so many attacking options and they, they just don't score goals. Mm. Um, you were looking at the start of the season thinking, how's he going to fit all this lot into the same lineup? He's got Coutinho and Buendia and Leon Bailey. He's got Ollie Watkins. He's got Danny Ings. He's got Cameron Archer. Like The last problem that Aston Villa should have is scoring goals. But it's a major problem for this team. And he's never really figured out the best source to goals. And, you know, that that is literally his job. Like, he needs to fix that. Like, there is goals in that team if you find the right way to set them up. So that's what I have worried about him. Um, you know, just tracking, like, fans' emotions that they clearly don't have much attachment to him, like, like Sam says. Um and I think they would they would love a coach like a proper proven coach, not not a not a legend of the game, not somebody that's done well for a bit somewhere else. I think they would genuinely welcome maybe a Steve Cooper, maybe somebody like that because they have a proven track record of improving teams. Well, well Dean, here's where, here's, here's, here's <laughs> Dean, here's here's where the conversation gets a bit more interesting there as well. You were asking, like, if you were super hyper ambitious as a Premier League club, what's the best you can do? And we took Pochettino out of the conversation for Forrest, but you might not necessarily be able to take him out of the conversation for Aston Villa. No. Um, so that's where it becomes a very interesting decision because, well, first of all, I think Gerard will get to at least the World Cup anyway, but that's where the the decision time comes. And if Pochettino is sat there, 
then you'd be mad not to look at that if Pochettino was 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 even remotely interested, given the ambition of this team and the, I think these he is owners. Interested. I think he is. But so there's, there's another there's another point here in that you look at what Steven Gerrard has done at, at various clubs, you know, at Rangers where, where he did well, obviously, with Michael Beale as his assistant. Michael Beale has gone to QPR and he's doing a very good job. And, you know, Rangers fans are, are very pleased with how Mick QPR Beale now, mate. Playing. Mick Beale, come on. Mick Beale now, sorry. Yeah, EastEnders character slash QPR head coach. Yes. Um, and what Aston Villa did relatively smartly in the summer, I thought, to replace him was they brought in Neil Critchley, who did an absolutely sensational job at Blackpool last season as a head coach. He very much is a coach. He's also part of that kind of Liverpool alumni, if you will, in terms of the coaching setup. And he sat there as Gerard's assistant. Now, if you're looking for a coach, you could do a lot worse than the man who is currently sat at Gerard's right hand and probably not picking the team. And, and obviously, this is not going to be the sexy, top-of-the-range name that people are going, OK, what, how's this working? But Neil Critchley is already within this Aston Villa setup. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if he gets a run at the reins if Gerard is sacked. I mean, look, that's a good point. But I actually, I think Gerard kind of tried to throw Neil Critchley under the bus the other week in oh, a yeah. post-match interview with Sky. Oh, exactly. Um, which, <laughs> which is a bit weird. Um, but he sort of intimated that we changed coaches over the summer. So Beal to Critchley is what he said. And maybe we went a bit too attacking, a bit too fast, and we've had to pull it back. I don't want to read too much between your lines because it is always hard to say exactly what he means. I don't want to attribute blame where it's not necessary. But yeah, there was a bit of um, a bit of run before we can walk, a bit of a change in attitude, a bit of change in coaching. So, so Critchley's already coaching the team and Gerard doesn't appear to be 100% happy with what's happened so far. So it feels like a big, big hot mess. And my answer would be, save until the World Cup and if Pochettino is there and the appetite is there either way, then have a serious, serious look at that. There's still a part of me that thinks Gerard is is a good manager, but I actually don't think he's willing to meet anybody halfway or, or come towards them enough for this situation to end up a long-term success. And I guess mm-hmm. the answer, the argument is, if you don't think it's going to be a long success, long-term success, then what are you waiting for? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's move on to number two, shall we? All right, number two. Can't believe this guy's still in the job. Um, have I given away my sack or save answer too soon there? Julian Lopetegui at Sevilla. Um, look, we've been talking about this for two months. Had Alan Feely on in August to preview La Liga and he was like, how hell is this guy still at the helm? Absolutely no idea. Coming into the season under a massive cloud. Maybe they couldn't afford to sack him, but they are starting to count the pennies now by the looks of it because they've been absolutely dreadful. Um, to start the season, seven games in, one win, four losses, 13 conceded. And it's that last bit there, that 13 conceded, that really bugs me from Sevilla's perspective because Sevilla over the last at least two to three years, but possibly even longer, have been really stingy and hard to beat. And they, may not, they may not necessarily churn enough wins, but they're hard to beat. They've like very frequently had the best or second best goals allowed record in La Liga often better than one of the two big, big guns and quite frequently better than Atletico Madrid recently as well. So not only are they not winning and not playing good football and not they don't have a feel-good factor, but they're starting to concede goals. It feels very un, unsevere. I don't like it at all. And <laughs> rather than churn good results, they're basically churning losses now. So saw a report over the weekend that Jorge Sampaoli has been um, sounded out for a potential return 
chaos i mean the ranks uh, that's so cool like honestly like if they're already sorting this out and, and talking about this then obviously the 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 talks are underway this is often what happens um there's pretty much no argument that i can think of for keeping lopetegui around except for you can't afford to sack him but clearly he's moved the needle enough in the last couple of weeks for them to reconsider that yeah i mean i was just looking at Sevilla's next fixtures like the 10 next games are a bit of a bloodbath, frankly. They have Dortmund, obviously, in the Champions League tonight, as you're listening to this, or on the Wednesday of this Champions League week. They then have Athletic Club, who we talked about being in sensational form. They then go to Dortmund away <laughs> the midweek after that. They have Mallorca away, who are tricky to beat at the moment, to be perfectly honest with you. Barcelona found that out you know, on, at the weekend. Then they have Valencia, who are in really good form. Then they have Real Madrid. Then they have this last game against Copenhagen. They have a home game against Rayo Vallecano, which, you know, they, they might well win. Then they have Man City. Then they have the derby against Betis, then Real Sociedad. And then we have the World Cup. It's really quite tough. That is 11 very... Of those 11 fixtures, you're looking at two, three wins maximum. And maximum. that is not going to save the pedigree. Frankly, that, that's where we're at. It, it, we're just not at a point here where three wins out of those quite tricky fixtures are not going to be enough to keep him in a job by the World Cup. And when you look at that and you think, OK, well, what, what are you doing? And do you just get it done now and, and get it, get it, try and get some momentum ahead of that? Or do you wait and give a new manager that big, big gap to try and work with? I don't know. I, I mean, look, I, I'm with you. In it. I don't think he should have started this season. I think the fans turned on him at the end of last season. And much as I'm enjoying Sevilla doing badly as a, as a Betis fan, <laughs> you know, this squad is better than what it, what it is currently putting out. And he doesn't seem to have any answers as to how to turn this around. Yeah, I, to give him a uh, leap to his defence ever so slightly, I guess, to give him some mitigating factors, he, he, he lost his central defensive pair yeah. Uh, in the summer, Diego Carlos went to Villa, and yeah, um, and Jules Kunde obviously ended up leaving for Barcelona. So the bedrock of this very, very strong defensive record over the last couple of years has largely gone. Fernando is still there patrolling in front of the defence. He's a very important part of it, but the centre backs have gone. They were replaced with, uh, you know, inferior inferior centre backs. Let's just let's just call it for what it is, and that's fair enough. Um, one in Tongi Nianzu, who has high potential, but is is very very young. Another in Marcao, who I believe has got injured immediately, and I don't think he's even played a minute. So again, even in trying to replace those players, one of them just goes down and misses the whole of the season. So far, he can't even play. This is this is tough. This is this is like fair enough. This is a difficult situation, but it was already a difficult situation, and he has like no solutions whatsoever as to how to fix it, as you said. So given that the fans don't like him, the football's rubbish, the results are really poor, and he can't seem to turn it around. I, I invite anybody to tell me that Lopetegui should be in this job. And Dean, I was very amused to see on Monday afternoon that he was then linked to the Wolves job uh, after mm. Bruno Lage was was fired, which I was like, what, what's he doing over there that's made Wolves think, yeah, go on then. Uh, I think it's linked with the agents, basically. I think that, um, uh, yeah, obviously Wolves have a, a yeah. set a, a route to go down in terms of um, the agency they work with. And I think Lopetegui is close to that um but yeah i think i don't think wolves are likely to go there i think it's one of the names that that's just been that, that been mooted um but he will be he'll, he'll, 
he'll still get a, a good job after this. You know, he'll, yeah. he'll definitely won't be out of work for very long. I think a lot of people are surprised at, at how it's got here. Um, but it seems like we're all saying sack at this point. Yeah, I, I, to say I, I, well, no, Jack's saying, Jack's saying safe because he's... Oh, no, obviously, yeah, obviously I would like him to stay <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. get them relegated, but equally, you know, this team are better than what they are, and, and, and ultimately he is he is not doing the job that he's supposed to be doing at the moment, which, no. is, which is proving incredibly difficult. Um, you mentioned Fernando there, Sam, and I, I think it's a fair point. He's also 35. Mm. You know, this is, this is a, a player coming to the twilight of his career. And ultimately, if you're looking at that as a kind of mitigating factor and the person that can make this all tick, that's a worry in itself, right? And, and look, he, as you say, these are the, the issues he's been given and the issues that he faces in terms of trying to build a squad out of sort of disparate parts that hasn't been fully restored since the summer where they lost, uh, you know, some very, very key pieces. Equally, it hasn't been given the injection of youth that it needs to, to give it, you know, to breathe maybe new life into it. Uh, and, and ultimately, I just can't see this turning around anytime soon. So much as I would like him to, to stay and, and, and bring Sevilla down with him, uh, I just think that this is one where they're going to have to have to get rid sooner rather than later, especially with that run coming up that we just talked about. Yeah, 100%. All right, I'll take us to number one then. I think this is probably the most interesting discussion on the list. So fitting that it is at number one is Simone and Zaghi at Inter yeah. Milan. Um, there was some discussion ahead of the recent international break that Inter might look at a potential switch because Inter haven't started the season as well as they definitely would have wanted to. Um, at that point, they'd lost three games already and they conceded more than 10 goals and he was definitely under pressure. Now, he survived the break. There were some people that were a little bit surprised by that. Rolled straight into the first game out of the break against Roma at home and lost 2-1. So, they're ninth. They're eight points off the top and the pace that Milan and Napoli are setting is pretty ferocious and Inter have lost half of the games that they've played, which is just not good enough for a team who won the Scudetto a couple of years ago and came within a win basically last year. So the, if the higher-ups are getting a bit itchy about this and, and how far they off are off Milan and Napoli, then I, I guess I wouldn't blame them. Now, we're recording Tuesday morning. They play Barcelona tonight and that means before this episode airs. So if they get absolutely handled at San Siro by Barcelona, then that, that could, I mean, that could literally be it. But I think we know based off this Champions League group already that Barcelona and Bayern Munich are a level above Inter. They are very closely linked uh, or very close in terms of level when Inter are a step below. So if Inter lose to Barcelona, it's no great shame. It's not a game that they should be winning or anything like that. So I hope that doesn't that doesn't colour the perception. And I'm actually on Inzaghi's side here. I think it's been a bad start, but he's a good manager. If he, if he gets given a bit of time, then he will probably figure it out. If Lukaku can return from fitness, that will be a massive help. And while Milan and Napoli are setting, obviously, this really strong pace, I mean, Inter will get the opportunity at some point over the next, well, over the season to put together a really strong run because they have really good players. They will. They'll find that momentum, I'm sure of it. So the last part to this equation, of course, and it's something we've we talked about with every single one so far is like, okay, so if this guy isn't for you, who can you get in who's better? Who can improve your scenario? And this is where it gets a little bit funny for Inter for me because... Over the last three years, they've had Conte and Inzaghi. And as a result of that, they've 
two managers who play the exact same formation, 3-5-2. And over the years, the squad has been built seemingly very specifically for a 3-5-2. If Inter go and find another manager, that manager will almost have to play with wingbacks and probably has to play with the front two because they've stockpiled five strikers and a bunch of wingbacks, but not many fullbacks. And they probably have to play three centre-backs too, based on who they've signed. So really, you need a, you need a manager who coaches 3-5-2. There's quite a specific set of instructions to go out to market with. And it rules out quite a lot of like top managers, really, at the end of the day. So you do have to be a little bit careful there because you wouldn't want to bring in a guy who wants to go to a back four. And suddenly Denzel Dumfries is about half as useful as he was. And suddenly Whacking Correa is completely pointless. It's 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 a dicey, it's a dicey game to play. So given Inzaghi's track record in Serie A, and given Lukaku's gonna come back and there's so much time left. I'm firmly in his camp here. It's the first one where I've been staunchly with the manager on this list, but I think Inzaghi deserves the time. Hmm. I mean, just looking at their tables at the moment, to be ninth in Serie A, it's like two spots below Juve, who are in crisis, supposedly, and Allegri should be gone. We're looking at a team here that was so close to winning the league, went down to the final day of the season to win it. We're expected to at least be in that conversation this season, um, they're a spot behind Sassuolo, who they face at the weekend. To lose to Barcelona tonight and then to lose at the weekend is surely in big danger because then you're looking at the serious prospect of one, not being in that title race in Serie A, but also not getting out of your Champions League group. And that, for the owners, will be like serious, serious concern. I know that they've had a very good relationship with Zaghi up to this point, but there's only so far that can go and whatever personal relationships you build the business becomes bigger and it has to be bigger at all times it's like Gerard and and isn't it same conversation you're you're really good mates until a certain point and it's hard it's really hard to make that decision but to be in this situation like maybe they cause a shock against Barcelona who knows but then they've got them again I think their next Champions League game is Barcelona as well I think that they are yeah, is it, it's a tough group. They've also got Bayern Munich in this group. They've, they've been landed in a really tough Champions League group. That is the whole point of the Champions League. You are testing yourself against the best and, and you've got to rise to these occasions. So um, I do feel sorry for him. Unfortunately, this is, this is how you're judged as a football manager. And right now, to see like Napoli, Atalanta, Udinese and Lazio making up the top four of Serie A and you're down in ninth, the owners are going to be like, what is going on? We should be top of this league. Like, we should be top of the league. We'd have a great if we were. We'd have a great chance of actually winning it. That's that'll be his fall down, I think. So, um, I'm going to say sack. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. I actually think that a lot of Inter fans have turned on him. There's been some strange decisions. We talked about the the yellow cards thing, Sam, a couple of weeks back about the fact that he just keeps pulling players who who get booked like immediately. Um, I was looking at a few names that might pop up, I suppose, in, in, in this conversation, you can imagine that Tuchel is going to be chucked into the mix. I wonder if... Lukaku would be would be sent crying home then as well. Forget Hudson-Odoi. Lukaku, he moved to Italy to get away from this man. I wonder <laughs> if they might have a look at Domenico Tedesco. Now, obviously, he didn't start this that well with Leipzig this season and he was you know, duly removed from his post, but they did all right last season. Better than all right. They did very well last season through, through long periods of it. He is Italian, he is young, um, and he does and has played that system before. Um, you know, to some 
quite heavy success at times. Oh, wow. One of those managers who, who starts to move about and, and, and move things around. But I just thought that might be something that people might consider. Tedesco is is a good manager and and does fit the mould in terms of how they how they want to play. I tell you what, adding I'm all for the I'm all for the experiment, um, and I, I do think that's an experiment because Tedesco is Italian and he is young and he and and he does play he can play three five two. He's also like. He's just come out of the Red Bull system, and he does play. He does play some pretty like German football. When you add German tactics into Italian football, it creates utter carnage. It is amazing to watch. Um, we saw a little bit of it with uh, Blessed and Genoa at the end of last season, and this would be something I would love to see. But I think it would be an absolute huge gamble. Huge gamble. I mean, the other one that you can look at, I suppose, here is. You know, the man who is taking, you know, maybe the best fairy story in Italy right now in Udinese plays a 3-5-2, Andrea Sotil. Now, obviously, he hasn't been in charge for all that long in <laughs> Udinese. But would they maybe take a gamble there? But, you you know, these these names, I know they're not the absolute, like, top-tier names that you're throwing out. You're trying to you're trying to find good fits. But do you want to? Do you want to? Do you want to trust in Simone and Zaghi? He's got a, like a brilliant Serie A record over a half a decade or more. Um, or do you want to take an absolutely humongous gamble? Like, I mean, I don't run a football club either, Jack. Like you said earlier, but I wouldn't be taking these the gambles this size. I'd be going in Zaghi. Would be fine. Mm. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think they're going to gamble. I really do. Oh. I think that they're going to gamble, especially if the next couple of results don't go their way, as Dean says. And if they're going to gamble, are they going to stick within Italy? And I think they might. I think they really might. So it's going to be interesting to see how they go here. But I would be keeping an eye on that subtle situation if I was Inter because, again, you know, yes, he's he's kind of played with, with what he's got available, but the 3-5-2 has done wonders through Nese this season. Um, he seems to be coaching that system really well. And if you offer him the opportunity to go to Inter, is he going to take it? Because I think also, the answer is... Probably yes. Um, now, so so yeah, it's a it's a gamble, but it's it's something that I think might end up end up being a thing. So we'll it's see. not a gamble. We'll it's see. an absolute. It's the biggest gamble any football club has ever taken in their lives. Would that be bigger than a Tedesco gamble? Yes. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Mm. Well, they're the ones I'd be keeping an eye on if I was into anyway. Those are the two the names that jump out to me. Um, aside from from Thomas Tuchel, I'm sure they'll have a little bit of a, a wander at just to see how things go. But yeah, um, lots lots to ponder if you are interisti, I think, at the moment. Right, that's all we've got time for in this main segment. Thank you very much, Sam. Uh, we've had a lot of fun there, sacking and saving coaches. It's, it's good to, to play with people's livelihoods, isn't it, as a, as a main <laughs> podcast topic. And right after the break, we have got the Mel of the Week and, of course, the gibberish rankings. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to Ranks FC. It's time for our third and final segment. I'm going to hand it over to Dean Jones for everybody's favourite time of the week. You're not going to like this one. It's time for Melon of the Week. This week's Melon of the Week is Nat Chalaber of Fulham Football Club. You won't agree with this, Jack. Um, I know that you didn't think that necessarily his tackle was bad at the weekend but uh, Nat Chalabar it was definitely bad <laughs> was sent off after seven minutes for Fulham against Newcastle and it killed the game it killed any chance that Fulham had of winning a game which to be honest would have been winnable 
Like Fulham had had a really good start to the season um, and they were missing Palinia, who had been the player of the season so far. Big absence, so the manager had to make a decision. Tom Kearney or Nat Chalibur to come in. Now, Nat Chalibur um, obviously used to play for Watford, if people are wondering exactly who he is. Um, was signed a year ago to Fulham. Did well in the Championship, did pretty well. This season hasn't really played, to be honest. I think he had about three minutes of action under his belt. I thought he'd have gone with Tom Kearney, the captain, but he didn't. He went with Nat Chalibur. So big game for him. Seven minutes in, slides in on Sean Longstaff. The ref initially uh, allows play to carry on, then calls it back um, after quite a, a little bit of time, uh, books him, and then it goes to VAR. And he's rightly sent off. It well, I think the reason I, I find this most annoying is because I had Dylan with me and it ruined the day. <laughs> it, it, it totally ruined the day because, you know, having a four-year-old at football, like he needs to be kept entertained. He needs to be kept uh, having something to be excited about. And from that moment on, I knew that even us scoring a goal was going to be a big ask in the next 83 minutes plus half-time. So, um, Can't score at half-time. He's constantly, I mean, the like, amount of time we've got to keep him inside the stadium. <laughs> um, he's constantly asking when they score. Obviously, Newcastle scored not that long after. He can't understand, like, why the other team are cheering. He's like, when's it our turn to score? <laughs> Game's dragging on and on. We go 4-0 down. Um, oh, he's such a, good. such a and pure soul. By the time Fulham did score, we were in the park walking home and you could hear it. Um, he goes... Dad, was that Fulham that scored? I was like, uh, yep. no, 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 it wasn't. It was the other team. He's like, oh, they got five now. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll say, I'll save you. Cry. He cried. We moved because, like, our season tickets are like towards the back of the, the stand behind the goal. But he likes to be down the front. I saw Jack seen him like running down the steps before. He he likes to sit in the middle of the steps, like not on a seat, like in the middle of the steps is where he he likes to sit. And so he goes and sits there. And then I sat on a seat nearby and he came back and he was actually sat on my lap and Fulham had a corner. And um, Tosin jumped up and he, he missed the chance. And Dylan cried. He cried because he, it was the closest he'd come to seeing him score. And he, he wanted him to have another go. Can he have another go because we need to score? <laughs> it's hard to explain. Anyway, I blame all of this. All of it on that chalibur. Absolute melon. Thanks, mate. Oh, my God. That's amazing. That's amazing. I, that's, it's so pure and so innocent, isn't it? It is. It when is, is it yeah. our turn to score? We all ask that on a weekly basis. Yeah. It's what we're all thinking. Out of the mouths of babes, isn't it? Out of the mouths of babes yeah. comes in. It really is mad Perfect watching him dreams. learn about football. Like He's really like, from the first time he went and he was like found it really overwhelming like a year ago overwhelming found it hard to stay we'd, we'd left up but I mean, this time we left quite early too but like left the game early but went to watch Peppa Pig on my phone through the game and now he's genuinely like he's shouting come on Fulham he's joining in Metro chants like he he's loving it but but you've got yeah, to win every week. Need us to win every time. <laughs> um, this <laughs> a is lot a lot harder when we don't. This is a great shout, Dino. And uh, in my mind, I was thinking you might go for Luis Sinistera. Who's, oh, um, yeah. Who's, like who's, on a normal week. I, yeah. If there was no emotion involved here, I probably would have gone Sinistera for the silliest thing of all time. Big, big shout to him, who's just establishing himself in the Leeds team and 
got a got a first yellow in the first half for a, a stopping a counter attack, and then stood in front of a free kick and stuck his leg out and blocked it from three yards, and got a second yellow like two minutes into the second half on Sunday. It's just so moronic um, and so tough as well because he's such a good player. We love him so much, but uh, yeah, I think um, I think Nat Chalaba ruining your day and your son's day is uh, is 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 very much justified here. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Also, I definitely think it was a red card. I just thought he was a little bit, you know, he was just trying to prove himself. Obviously, first start of the season, he was trying to have his moment and he's just got it a little bit wrong. I thought he was a bit, a touch unlucky. I don't think there's any malice in the challenge. That's all I was saying with it. It was just one of those that that sometimes happens. But completely with you on it ruining Dylan's day. I got a hug off him, though, at half-time. And he got to see Miguel Almiron's... um, absolute worldy the Newcastle. Yeah, he did so, think that was a good goal, to be fair. Yeah, we, we asked him how, how he thought it was going at half-time. He was like, great. I was like, no, 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 no. I think, I think we've, mis- great. <laughs> we've misread the situation here, my man. Um, but how do you think it's going, Dylan? Great. Yeah, great. Really okay, enjoying right. it. You know, he was really cool. We said, great. We were like, we're 3-0 down, Dylan. He's yeah, but I've got Well, the, the reason he thought it was I've great, he, he'd had a couple of packets of McCoys. He had Haribo. He'd had, you know, all sorts by that point. He was at a proper high. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Loving it. Loving it. Um, right, we're going to move on to the gibberish rankings. I was going to do the gibberish alarm, but I actually think that with this Britney Spears headset, it might drown you. So I'm just going to give you a... Wah, wah, wah. We'll start the, the gibberish rankings this week, so. Okay, um, I decided to go with a touch of self-indulgence this week on the gibberish. We're going to talk about been full of it. <laughs> we're going to talk about yeah. things that I'm good at. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Pretty short. Well, yeah, it was a struggle to make three. Um, I asked my wife, and she uh, she got she had one suggestion, which is not in the list. I'll give it as an honourable mention. I said, "What am I good at?" She went, "Injuring yourself." And that was that it. True, that was, that was all she had for me. So I, I was she left on my own on. devices to decipher my own strengths. Um, something you might say suits a job application or a CV or an interview very, very well. Being able to know your own strengths. I think this is a very important life skill. So I turned the critical eye upon myself, metaphorically, and this is what I came up with. Um, and number three, I'm very good at correctly identifying the best thing on the menu at a restaurant and then ordering it. So... I very rarely ever get food envy and I'm very often the recipient of food envy, envious glances, sometimes offers to swap meals and at points evil stares from my wife who was picked wrong and was possibly going to pick what I picked, zigged instead of zagged and then just got really upset because mine looks so much better. And I find that I almost never get food envy. I never really look at what anyone else has ordered on the restaurant and menu and gone, oh, I wish I had that. I'm very good at like picking out what I want, staying the course, making the call, and then enjoying my meal. And I think this is an underrated strength. It is. That's, this is genuinely really impressive. I'm terrible yeah. at this. I'm in Rachel's camp. I'm always like, yeah, I could get that. They are all the things that I like, but... That looks interesting. Like, <laughs> you don't ask three of the ingredients in that meal, Jack. You're like, yeah, 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 but look at it. It looks well interesting. So I actually completely think this is a very fair point, Sam. It's a very, very underrated strength. This is you're that meme where you're on the you're the car on the motorway and you're on the on the freeway and there's that aggressive right turn. Yeah, that is me. <laughs> that is me on a menu. And I'll do it. I'll also do it. I'll say that I'm getting something and then it'll come to it and I'll order and I'll be like, panic and then just order something else and then I'll, it'll come to it and everyone else will have the well nice thing well. that i have an order and i'll be like oh yeah damn and i have to pretend to enjoy it because obviously you have to be like oh yeah no obviously i've made the right choice it's delicious 
Yeah, like, yeah. Finish, you haven't finished it. You've left half of it behind. I was like, oh, so cool. So cool. <laughs> Can we get McDonald's afterwards, please? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, number two. Number two. I This is a new skill that I've acquired recently. It is posting parcels. I was, I'm glad you said this because I was, was going to be my one to add at the end. So, yeah, I agree. Yeah. In the last two months or so, I've sent more than 60 parcels of Ranks FC merchandise to our beloved listeners. Uh, we've sold out our, our pre-order stock. So, first of all, this is basically an excuse to say thank you to everyone who ordered. Um, mm. If you haven't received yours yet, it's basically either on the way or I have sent you a clarifying message on Discord. Trevor, check your DMs. Um, I've sent to the USA, across the USA, some wonderful different uh, different places, probably about about 10 or 15 different states. Um, really lovely to see. Uh, up and down the UK, Ireland, Belgium, Netherlands, South Africa. Who knows if that will get there. Australia, I know for a fact that did. I was as surprised as you are. Puerto Rico. I sent a parcel to Puerto Rico on Thursday. I didn't even know nice. you could do that. Um, the person, the person that 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 asked for it gave him gave me the address, and they went. And if you can't do it, I've got a friend in Miami who can forward it to me. So he must be aware that certain countries just can't do it. Oh, wow. um, but yeah, um, that was interesting. Um, so I've learned a lot about this stuff. Really, I've learned a lot about posting regulations. I've learned a lot about customs declarations, taxes, environmental footprints, and international address formats and postcodes. It has been unbelievably boring, but necessary. You've done a very good job of yeah, it. Well you really have. I'm glad you took it all because I I did not want to play any part. <laughs> head, head of dispatch, Sam Tai. That can go into your titles at the start of the podcast. Yeah, some of the CV if you, ever, if you ever have to have a job. Yeah, I'll take head, head of, of dispatch. dispatch. Yeah, that's yeah. good. Yeah, rank God on the head of dispatch. Lovely. Okay, number one, my greatest skill in life is I have become an excellent solitaire player. Um, I play it most nights to wind down in bed or on planes when I'm ignoring Jack Collins. And um, as Jack will attest to, I was very slow at this game back in about May. Uh, I caught Jack watching me play over my shoulder on a plane to Albania and um, he was grimacing. And he was grimacing because I was not actually putting the cards up into the collection thing. I was collecting them, as I claimed, which is definitely not how you play that game. Um, <laughs> but I, I've got a lot better. I've done a lot less dawdling on it. And I've actually tried really hard to set a really good time. Uh, and my yeah. current best time is 1 minute 46, which is pretty good. It's pretty quick. Like it's not world record stuff. I've had a look on the internet, and you know there are people that are out there. That... You thought you might have set a world record, so you checked. <laughs> okay, yes, I did. I did genuinely check the record. <laughs> it's not a world record, but it's several minutes, like somewhere between two and, and five minutes below, like an average time, depending on which which version of solitaire you play. Which is it's pretty good. I'm pretty pleased with it. Yeah, you should be that. I'm really glad that you've improved because it was genuinely <laughs> painful watching you play solitaire. I too, I'm a, I'm a sucker for solitaire on my phone, and it, you know it's one of those things you like absolutely flipping them, and I'm turn over the turn over my head, you know, crane my neck in the Erling Haaland style, as Dean said right at the beginning of this podcast. And I'm like, hang on, I've played three games of solitaire, and Sam is just collecting cards at the bottom of the deck. Um, so yes, there are there are there are different things. I'm glad that you've improved, Sam. So. Yeah, very good. This is a great skill to have. Yeah, so I've learned the rules, and now I'm good at it. Nice. Good. Excellent. Yeah, no, this is this is very good. Surely the best thing you're best at is ranking things, though. Goes without saying. 
Yeah, that's that's kind of a given, isn't it? It's a it's a given. I was going to actually throw this onwards and be like, Dean, what's yours? But I actually think this podcast has gone far enough. Yeah, I'll do one next week. Minutes. You've got the gibberish next week, and I'll have it the week after. Things that we're good at. So let's <laughs> okay, yeah, let's do that. Two things. Um, but on that bombshell, we are going to call this a day, and all that's left for me to do is say thank you very much to our five by five champion king of the Andals in the first one, Mr. Dean Jones. Cheers, mate. Thank Have a good you. holiday. I will do. Thank you very much. I'll see you on Thursday, as ever. Um, <laughs> yeah, holidays, but for schmucks. Um, thank you very much to our rank god and, of course, head of dispatch, Mr. Samtai. I got a new title. Hey. Thanks, mate. Um, I'm going to give myself one as well because I've watched the end of Eternals and I saw uh, Harry Styles' character arrive and call himself the Knave of Hearts. And I was like, love that. Having that. Thanks very much. I've been Jack Collins, Knave of Hearts and the Prince of this <laughs> podcast. Thank you so much for listening as ever. We will see you next week, gang. Take it easy.